coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Um, and I define health by um, does your body have the ability to adapt to different situations? Can it adapt to different fuel sources? Can it adapt to different stresses? Can it adapt to different brain waves and things like that? Like um, if we get stuck in one thing, like if you get stuck burning just carbohydrates or glucose for fuel and your body forgets how to burn fat, that's not, that's not uh, being able to adapt. If you get stuck right. in a, a sympathetic dominant state where your body is in a stress state all the time and you, and it forgets how to be in a non-stress state, that's, that's not training it to adapt, you know? So, so things we talk about, like, like the cold showers and stuff right. like that's training your body to adapt to different things. And that's really, really important as far as health goes. I define health by the ability of your body to adapt to, to different situations. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Stephen Hussey. He's a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner, speaker, and the author of two books on health. We discussed Dr. Hussey's health journey, toxins to avoid for optimal health, the advantages of infrared saunas, along with LDL, statins, and cholesterol, polyunsaturated fats for saturated fats, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Thanks so much for listening. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Hussey. I know you will too, and have a great day. All right, Dr. Stephen Hussey, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, I was, uh, we were talking a bit in the, before we got on, um, and I wanted to know how you, how you got into sort of um, human nutrition and heart health. I know you're, you have a heart course as well. How did that sort of come about? Yeah, I mean, just, just like a lot of people, um, I guess, in, in this space, it's, it's uh, you know, personal health journey kind of uh, got me into all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, just from a, from a very young age, I had some health issues um, that my parents noticed, whether it was asthma or allergies, or I used to break out in huge hives all over my body for, you know, no reason, supposedly. Um, and, uh, and eventually all that inflammation, you know, ended up with me being diagnosed with autoimmune type one diabetes um, when I was nine years old. And, uh, and so, you know, my parents and I didn't really know too much about these types of things. So we were just relying on Western medicine to help us out um, and, and manage these conditions. But I guess that's the key word is, is manage um, and not ever explain why they were happening. And so, you know, it wasn't until I guess college, uh, I, I, uh, I started figuring out that uh, the way I lived my life and the things I did had an impact on how I could manage these things and eventually got rid of a lot of them. Um, and so, however, I was left with the autoimmune type one diabetes, which, you know, the, the damage was done. So that's going to be there. Um, and so I started realizing over, you know, my time seeing endocrinologists and things for the type one diabetes that, you know, I was severely predisposed to, you know, cardiovascular conditions and diseases at the blood vessels and things because of chronically high blood sugars or higher than, even if it's well-controlled, higher than the, the normal person without type one diabetes. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, you know, every time I've, I've, uh, heard anything about heart disease, my ears perked up and I've tried to learn as much as I could. Um, but you know, even in my, my, I guess, formal medical training, 
you know, it, it wasn't giving me the answers as to why I was predisposed and, um, and what I could do about it and why all these things happened in the first place. And so it's just been, kind of been this never ending journey for me of trying to figure out why all this happened. Um, yeah. And then I started sharing some of that information, you know, maybe three years ago now, um, people liked it. So here I am. Yeah. And, um, what would you say you learned, you learned the most through that process? Um, you said you were, had asthma allergies. Is that right? Yeah. I feel like that's such a common thing. You just hear a lot of people have that, uh, could you you pinpoint certain things that you've done to help, um, uh, remedy that? Yeah. I think that, uh, the biggest, cause like when I was a kid, it was, it was exercise induced asthma, or if I would, you know, laugh really hard with my friends, it would, it would happen. Um, and I start wheezing and coughing. Um, and you know, certain things started to trigger it too, like, like cats or animals being around, um, would trigger that kind of stuff as well. Um, and, and I'd say that all those things went away for the most part when I became conscious about what I was eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also toxin exposure as well. Um, and just eliminating exposures, you know, like, like the animals and things like that. Though I have, you know, animals in our house now and I'm fine. fine. Um, but right. for a long time it was, you know, avoiding those things. Um, but the diet was huge and it took a lot of trial and error and, um, getting through misinformation and, and trying lots of different diets and things for me to figure out what worked. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was mainly diet. I think that got rid of like allergies and, um, uh, and the hives and things like that. It was just like toning down the inflammation that my body was so, um, on edge about, you know, it was just the slightest little thing would trigger all that inflammation. As soon as I, mm. I got my, um, I guess my threshold of what would trigger it down, then I could withstand those things. And I did that through, through diet and toxin avoidance. Yeah. What type of, uh, toxin avoidance did you go about? You know, you hear that quite a bit as well. Um, and sometimes I, I feel like it would be tough to pinpoint like what was triggering it. Yeah, it, and it is. And so you just kind of, you learn about all these different toxin exposures and you and you work to limit all the ones that you can and not freak out about the ones that you can't because you can't right. avoid them all, right? <laughs> um, but I tell people, you know, going through the, you know, the five main areas that I think were, were mostly exposed to toxins, um, at least on a daily basis, uh, one is food. Um, and so, you know, you got to expect if there's toxins in your food, um, you're going to put them right into your body. So whether that's, you know, uh, pesticides and herbicides and things like that, that are sprayed on food, but also, you know, potential toxins that the, the plant, um, or the food to make themselves, um, you have to be conscious of those. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody should avoid, you know, plant toxins, but, you know, we need to be conscious of how those affect us. And if they do affect them, then and getting rid of them can be huge, um, especially for inflammation and, and autoimmune type things. Um, then there's water, uh, making sure your water is, um, as free of toxins as possible. Um, which, you know, if you're drinking a municipal water supply, it's probably full of different things from heavy metals to extra medications to pesticides and things like that. Um, so water filters are useful there. Um, just being conscious of, of remineralizing the water too. Um, and then, uh, there's air, which obviously you can't control all the air you breathe, but you can do your best to control the air in your home. Mm -hmm. Um, and making sure, especially in your bedroom where you spend, you know, a third of your life, um, uh, making sure that's clean air that, so we're not getting those exposures there, whether it's mold or, um, 
or just, you know, the uh, artificial fragrances and things that are all over people's homes, you know, like the, the air fresheners and things like that. Yeah. Um, then there's um, cosmetics and cleaning products. Um, those types of things. Uh, those are the, those are the big five. So just making sure that everything you put on your body or you use to clean your home is, uh, is as, as toxin free as possible. I mean, really all you need to, to clean is like water and vinegar and like some essential oil. If you want it to smell nice, um, that's, that's enough. You know, you don't need these chemicals and things, uh, to, to clean your home and, and, uh, yeah. And just being conscious of the, you know, the cosmetics and things, even like laundry detergents and, you know, soaps and toothpaste and all those different things. Like it all sounds like trivial amounts of things that we're getting exposed to, but when you add it all up, uh, it becomes this one big toxin exposure every single day. And it's because lots of these things, many of them anyways, are, are, you know, water soluble. Your body can get rid of them pretty easily, but if they're constantly coming in, mm -hmm. then it's uh, it's hard for your body to keep up. Uh, and sometimes they get stored. And so, yeah, just looking into those areas and, and, you know, the allergies and the, the, I guess the responsiveness of my immune system, uh, my inflammatory system uh, went way down when I started avoiding all those. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, for example, just like deodorant, like it's something that it's, it's it can be subtle and it's something that you do every day and it can probably add up over time. You know, it's like the difference between like, if you say, Oh, I'm just going to have a French fries and you have it once every three months. But if you're having a little bit every day, that's when it really takes a toll. You don't realize until almost like it's a little bit too late. Yeah. Like with deodorant, it's an interesting one because like the antiperspirants uh, specifically are the ones that have aluminum in them. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that compound with aluminum is designed to, is what actually makes so the, the, the pores don't sweat. Um, so it blocks that. What's, what's ironic though, is that the aluminum is getting into your body and that's going to get stored as, and heavy metals are really hard to get rid of actually. Um, but, but sweating is actually one of the mechanisms we use to actually get rid of, of, uh, heavy metals or help our liver out and get rid of those heavy metals. Um, so it's kind of like we're putting that metals in and preventing the way that we get metals out as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I actually, my, I was telling my wife to stop using her deodorant. <laughs> And, uh, we've, I, I, I'm, I'm transferring, we're transferring a lot of things over and, and keeping an eye on that. I'm pretty good with it. Um, actually one of the things that I was fortunate to get recently was an infrared sauna. Um, and I know you've talked a little bit about that on your website and your blog. Um, maybe let's touch a little bit on that as long as we're talking about toxin and detoxification. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it, I always think of things from like an evolutionary perspective and why it would make sense to use an, uh, an infrared sauna. Cause that's mm -hmm. a very modern technology. Right. Um, but you know, 40% of the sun's rays are, are infrared. So that was our original exposure to it. That's where, you know, our bodies got used to that type of thing uh, over, you know, the, the, the many, many years of our evolution. Um, and so now we can kind of use these modern technologies to help us get exposure to those. Um, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of research that shows that just regular steam saunas are beneficial. Sure. Um, for the sweating, um, mostly like out of finish, like the finished saunas and things. Yeah. Um, but the infrared is particularly important to me. Um, not only because it, you know, the sauna makes you sweat and you sweat out toxins, sure. which there's, there's very, um, interesting research that shows that when you sweat in infrared sauna, um, more, more metals come out, um, you know, through the sweat than if you just to go for a run or something or just sweat without the infrared exposure. Do you know, uh, that's interesting. Do you know why that is? Um, I, not specifically, but I have a theory as yeah. to why, 
Um, and, and it has to do with, and this may open a whole, a whole nother can of worms, but mm-hmm. it has to do with um, uh, the structuring of water in our bodies, um, which is, you know, like our bodies are, you know, you know, a large proportion of water. Um, you hear anywhere from 60 to 80% water. Right. Um, so there's a lot of water, but it, what form is it in? You know, people think, you know, if I was, if I was 70% water, um, I don't slosh around like a waterbed. So, so the, the water in my body is not in a form that is liquid, um, or lots of it, the, the water in the blood or the lymphatic system or the cerebral spinal fluid. Yes, that's a liquid. Um, but most of the water in our bodies, like in our cells is in more of a gel state. So it's not like frozen solid, like ice. It's not a liquid like water. Um, it's kind of this gel state. Think like, like jello. And it makes right. sense. Cause if you poke the tissues of your forearm, they give a little bit and then it comes back just like jello does, you know? And so, um, and when you get older, of, it doesn't come back as much good. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So we, we have trouble, um, maintaining that structure, um, in, in, in the water in our bodies. And so, um, yeah, so infrared light, um, you know, water has this ability to hold energy, um, and infrared light is the most absorbable form of energy that our, our that water can, can absorb. Mm-hmm. And when it has that energy, when it gets next to a hydrophilic surface or a water loving surface it actually structures itself. And so this is what happens in the lining of our arteries, what happens in our cells. Um, however, when you, when you heat that, um, it kind of, it can kind of break it down. So it's energizing the, um, the water there, but when you heat it, it kind of breaks that down a little bit. And so these, these, um, heavy metals that get, um, can get kind of stored in our body. Sometimes they can get stuck in this gel like state stuck inside the cells. Mm. And if we heat the body, so the heat is the important thing there, not necessarily the, uh, the infrared, but the infrared is important for restructuring it once the, the heating process is, is over. But when we heat it like that, it kind of breaks it down a little bit and that can help release metals. Um, and then when you sweat, they just kind of come right out through, through a different form of water, different state of water. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that's my theory as to why that is, but regardless of whether that's true or not, the research shows that when you sweat and an infrared's on it versus just sweating normally, mm-hmm. more metals come out. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's good to know. And, um, the nice thing I like about the infrared sauna too, is you don't like, as opposed to just a regular Swedish sauna, um, is you could be in there for a while. It's not like, uh, you're not feeling like you're getting like smoked out, um, yeah, or you know? suffocated or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you're meant to be in it for a little bit longer. You can, you can, you can handle the heats just the way it's applied is differently. Um, as opposed to just through steam. Yeah, definitely. So, um, but now that we talk about toxins, I do want to talk a little bit about the heart <laughs> and the cholesterol. And I have quite a few guests on here. We talk about this, um, and I just wanted your perspective. I, uh, I actually recently got some blood work done and, you know, I think it's, it's a common thing, especially in like, um, traditional, uh, physicians, if they see, a, you know, high cholesterol and high LDL, they panic and a lot of statins are, are being, uh, you know, given, uh, what are your thoughts around that? Um, and also like LDL particles and things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've looked at t- extensively at this because, you know, I was interested in the heart and everybody, you always hear that, yeah, high cholesterol is like the number one risk factor for heart disease. Um, but I, I haven't really been able to find anything that says that it is the, at least the most important risk factor for sure. It's, it's definitely not the most important. Yeah. Um, insulin resistance, I think is the most important. 
um, as far as from a metabolic standpoint, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, with cholesterol, I mean, there's a reason it's there. Um, it does a lot of different things in the body. It's really, it's essential for life. I mean, cell communication, cellular structure, making over hormones, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so aggressively lowering it, um, doesn't really quite make sense to me. Um, you know, especially with the guidelines saying that it should be a hundred or lower and using these aggressive drugs, whether it's a statin or a PCSK9 inhibitor, um, to keep it lower than a hundred, um, doesn't really make sense to me based on, you know, physiology, based on the fact that humans have been, um, you know, eating cholesterol rich foods and, and saturated mm -hmm. fat foods for, for since the beginning of humans uh, on this planet. Um, and heart disease is a relatively new, at least in the epidemic that we know it, a relatively new phenomenon. Um, you know, it's really only been an epidemic within the last 150 years or so. Um, and so that doesn't really make sense to me that it's all of a sudden these, this, this cholesterol is killing us when it's been around forever. Um, then the argument is, I guess the devil's advocate is like, what if it gets too high? That's the problem. Yes, we need it. But if it gets too high, that's the problem. Um, and and, you know, there's studies on people with familial hypercholesterolemia, which is people with extremely high cholesterol levels, um, LDL and total cholesterol levels. Um, and, you know, when they, when they track these people, um, they don't seem to die any sooner than other people. Um, and one study even suggested that when they do die sooner, it's not because of the high cholesterol, it's because of other um, lifestyle factors, you know, that, that may have damaged the cholesterol. Um, and then, and therefore damaged cholesterol can, can contribute to those things, but that's not the cholesterol's fault. That's other things that are damaging the cholesterol. But interestingly, very recently, uh, a study came out and it was just an association study. Um, but it suggested that, um, it looked at cholesterol levels, looked at a lot of things and all cause mortality. But one of the things it looked at was cholesterol levels and all cause mortality, um, which is dying from anything. Uh, and it found that the people with cholesterol levels between about 110 and 150, 110 and 160, something like that, had the lowest all-cause mortality uh, of any of the groups. Um, and that the people with the cholesterol numbers lower than about 85 had um, the highest all-cause mortality, which, you know, the recommendation is for it to be lower than 100. And many people are prescribed these cholesterol-lowering medications to keep it below 100, many times below 85. And that's when we see the association with the highest all-cause mortality and above 100, you know, 117 to 150 or so um, is the lowest all-cause mortality. So clearly cholesterol is important. We need it around for things. And when we, when we decrease it, there's an association with more uh, death from any cause. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's all this, this nuance to cholesterol conversation um, and, you were talking about particle sizes and things like that, particle mm -hmm. numbers. And I think that, I think the jury is still out on, on cholesterol. And there's this huge focus on it because of the history of how this all played out. Um, and I think it's been a huge distraction as to what really causes heart disease, which is what I'm trying to, to illuminate for people. Um, but with particle size, I think that, you know, the size of your, or your LDL molecule. So like, it's thought that the smaller, denser ones are more problematic because they can penetrate the lining of the artery more. Um, and that only happens when they become damaged. So you don't want damaged or oxidized cholesterol particles. That's the, 
that's the thing that uh, everybody's looking out for is you can get that measured through, you know, ox LDL and, and LP little a and things like that. Um, but even that theory doesn't necessarily, you know, make sense to me because, you know, we were talking about the infrared sauna and the fourth phase water or the structured water, or the gel state water. Uh, and that's actually something that lines our arteries. If the water in our body is sufficiently energized, um, and it, when it lines the, the arteries, it's kind of a protective layer for the lining of the arteries. And, um, and, uh, and one thing that's interesting about it is that the, the structured water is also another name for it is exclusion zone water. Um, because of the way it structures itself, it excludes anything that's not it. And only very small hydrated ions of minerals can get through it. But anything bigger than those, anything, um, bigger than that can't penetrate this barrier is protecting the lining of the artery. Mm -hmm. And so even a small dense LDL particle is gigantic uh, when, it, when looking at what can get through this barrier. So that's another reason why I like infrared sauna is because it helps structure that water so you can maintain that lining. And so this whole particle size thing and how, you know, it, it's not because the particles are smaller that, that those damaged LDL particles are actually giving us more risk. It's the things that cause those LDL particles to get smaller is what's causing our risk. And the things that cause those things to get smaller are things that cause damage. So that's going to be inflammation, the toxins we talked about. Um, it's going to be chronic stress. Those are the things that damage LDL particles and make them smaller. However, those are also the things that can break down this protective barrier lining of our artery of the fourth phase water um, and also eventually damage the lining of the artery. And so when all that happens, the body you know, responds and it has to repair that because if it doesn't, it'll rupture and that's worse. That's bleeding out rather than, than having atherosclerosis. And so it has to repair it. So it uses cholesterol and minerals and things like that to like, almost like spackle to repair the artery. Um, and, and, it, but again, the cholesterol is deposited there and it's kind of framed. Um, when in reality, what caused it to be deposited there was all this inflammation, oxidative stress, all these, all these things we talk about that causes that stuff. Um, so the reason that a a small dense LDL particle is indicative of, of your risk for atherosclerosis is because the things that are causing those small dense particles are also the things damaging the lining of the artery. It's all just kind of happening at once. Um, so we can't blame those particles, those small particles. Um, so, you know, as that's what you can take from a, a small LDL or from a, you know, particle size um, test is that you can say, Oh, I have a lot of oxidative stress going on. If you have a high particle or low, a lot of low particle size, um, uh, lipoproteins. Um, so yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I probably followed you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, um, so the bottom line is it's cholesterol gets blamed and it's really these other things that are causing inflammation and it's context related, right? Like if, if you have inflammatory markers, um, and like you mentioned, insulin resistance and things like that, that, that's, that is what should be blamed as opposed to just cholesterol and even particle size as well. Yeah. It's, you know, any disease, you can't just blame it on one thing, one biomarker. Uh, that's just incredibly reductionist and naive. In my opinion, you know, our bodies are these complex biological ecosystems with many, many things going on. You can't just reduce it down to a disease to down to one thing, you know? And, right. and so you know, like, I have a theory that, that, in the context of inflammation, let's say that someone is, is smoking and, and drinking excessively and they're really stressed out and they have all these things um, that are causing this inflammation and oxidative stress. Then at that point, maybe having higher LDL or higher, higher cholesterol 
may be a problem because there's more cholesterol around to get damaged, mm. right? And when, when cholesterol becomes damaged, it contributes to that process of oxidative stress and inflammation. It just becomes, it's, a, it's like, it's like those zombies, you know, like, you know, if you get you know, touched by a zombie, you become a zombie, you know, mm. it's like you get touched by the oxidative stress. Now you become part of the problem. Right. And so right. Uh, I have a theory that in that state of this inflammation and oxidative stress, then maybe having higher LDL may not be a good idea because there's more around to get damaged mm-hmm. and that's just more problems in the bloodstream. But I don't know about that for sure. Um, just a theory. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, we want, we want to blame like one thing on like, you know, everything it's like blaming meat or, you know, like, which has been vilified for a long time. Um, and blaming even salt as well for high blood pressure. What are your thoughts around like meat and salt, um, as far as being the victim here, uh, and being blamed for, for causing these issues? Yeah. And meat was kind of guilty by association, I think, um, because, you know, the whole story of, of Ansel Keys back in the fifties and sixties and how he did some research, um, some associational epidemiological research that shows that the more saturated fat, um, that, uh, a, a country ate, the more heart disease they had. However, he excluded countries that didn't fit his criteria. There was data from 22 countries available and he chose the seven that gave him the the conclusion he wanted left out places like France where they ate lots of saturated fat and had lower heart disease and, and things like that. And so, um, I, in my opinion, he's been pretty much disproven at this point, whether that's recognized in, in mainstream circles, I don't know, but, you know, because of saturated fat, you know, meat has saturated fat. It was kind of meat was guilty by association. Oh, red meat's the reason we're having these problems when in reality, red meat's been part of the human diet in large amounts. Um, especially as hunter gatherers, um, for a very long time. Um, and like I said, this, to this epidemic we have today is, is a very new thing. Um, but the other thing that doesn't make sense to me is that, um, you know, when you look at the, the physiology, well, there's two things, I guess, when you look at the physiology of how your body uses saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fat, um, like the actual breakdown of it into, into making ATP, like when it uses polyunsaturated fat, it actually kind of breaks your metabolism if it has to use that too much. And so we look at this increase in, in vegetable oil consumption since, you know, the early 1900s mm-hmm. um, and how that's correlated directly with the rise in heart disease. It makes complete sense that all these polyunsaturated fats, not that polyunsaturated fats are bad, we need them, but we just don't need them in the amounts that we're consuming them for sure. Um, because red meat has polyunsaturated fat in it, just way lower, you know, we need the right ratios. Um, but yeah, when you burn primarily polyunsaturated fats, it tends to break your metabolism, which it seems to me based on the mechanisms that leads to insulin resistance, um, like systemic insulin resistance, whereas when you burn saturated fats, that doesn't really happen. Um, so, so that's a a huge part of it there. But then the other thing is, is that that's a huge part of why red meat and, and things don't cause, um, heart disease, um, because that, that insulin resistance is what is the main I guess, metabolic, you know, trigger for, for heart disease. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that when you look at the nutrient content of animal foods, um, you know, nutrients that are primarily found only in animal foods, especially like red meat and pork and things like that, things like uh, creatine and and carnitine and carnosine and taurine, things like that um, have huge benefits for the cardiovascular system, whether it's the heart specifically or specifically for taurine or for taurine is, um, 
the health of the vascular um, system that we have. Like it's just those, those foods like there, in some of those cases, some of those foods you can find a little bit in plant foods, but they are primarily in our diet. They come from animal foods like red meat and pork and things like that. So, um, so it makes no sense that a food with all these, um, these high quality nutrients that are, that do many amazing things for the cardiovascular system. It's also a food that's killing us. Yeah. It just, it makes no sense whatsoever. Right. And, and, you know, it's been totally ignored that, that, uh, the increase in processed food and the lack of nutrients and the increase in polyunsaturated fats, like those are the things that have changed. So those are the things that should be under the microscope, you know, and figuring out what's going on there. Instead, there's this huge push to, to blame the red meat. So it's just sad. And then um, <clears throat> with uh, salt, mm-hmm. um, salt's another really interesting one. Um, you know, it, it's thought that, you know, too much salt causes high blood pressure when exactly it, it, it's actually the opposite, I think, because, um, you know, high blood pressure, again, is caused by primarily in our society, insulin resistance, um, but also imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. So when you're in this hyper-stressed state all the time, then obviously blood pressure is going to go up. Um, and humans in modern day tend to get stuck in that state. Um, but yeah, and one of the things, one of the um, contributors to insulin resistance is is low salt. Um, and so if you think about it, you know, low salt um, causing insulin resistance then causes heart disease, um, high blood pressure, things like that. So in reality, we need, we need more salt, but that's not like preservative salt, like sodium bicarbonate. It's not table salt. Um, you know, it's, it's mineral salt, mm. whether it's uh, Himalayan salt or um, sea salt, things like that. You want, you want complete minerals in your salt. We're not designed to get the, the table salts and, and preservative salts and things like that. Yeah. I had a uh, Rob Wolf on duck. Um, and, uh, we talked a bit about that. He has his company, um, element with, uh, with the, 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 diff- you know, the different salts and they're sweetened a little bit with the stevia. Um, but uh, I've been putting them in my waters here and there, but yeah, like a good mineral, I always say mineral water, um, is a great place to start and, and like a Redmond sea salt in your, do you, do you do that for your waters or how do you drink your water? I mainly, uh, just drink mineral waters. Okay. Um, that I buy at the store. And then I have a filter that we use, um, for like the tap water and stuff. Um, and, uh, I use that for like cooking and stuff where I'm adding, like if we make a big soup, we use that, but mm-hmm. then we're always adding minerals to it with the salt and with the vegetables and things we use. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then any salt I do put on food is always a mineral salt. Um, and that's where I try and balance my minerals that way. Um, because we're not, you know, water should have minerals in it. That's the way it's supposed to come. Um, and, uh, there's, there's some evidence that, um, uh, that, you know, drinking, you know, complete RO reverse osmosis water can deplete your body of minerals over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know how sound the evidence is, um, but, but it makes sense to me. Um, and I would always, um, we need minerals in general. So why not just drink mineral water, which is the way it comes naturally from the earth, you know, it comes uh, mineral rich. So that makes sense that that's, that's what it should be. Yeah. And I'm curious with all the research and the things you've learned over the last few years, like how have you implemented into your daily routine and what type of things have you, do you go about, whether it's eating or, you know, infrared or, you know, things like that. Yeah. On a typical work day, you know, um, I wake up and, uh, I, the first thing I do is, um, like, you know, like breathing exercises, um, for about 15 minutes. Uh, and then I, um, I, I, 
you know, record things in a gratitude journal, just like things that I think I'm grateful for, like opportunities for the day and things like that, um, or something that may have happened the day before, um, things like that. Um, and then, you know, I don't eat in the mornings. Um, uh, I only eat um, from, from like noon to, you know, maybe around seven um, or so uh, in that window. So I don't eat in the mornings, um, but I get up and I uh, usually uh, pick like a, uh, a quick, like cold shower, which sounds bad for, it sounds bad for lots of, uh, uh, two lots of people, but uh, doesn't sound uh, bad to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and I feel like, you know, when I talk about things like the autonomic nervous system and our stress response, um, heart rate variability is the best way to measure balance in that. And, and, you know, the breathing exercises and the cold showers have been one of the things that, um, that and, and dopamine fasting have been like the things that I've noticed the most impact on my heart rate variability. So, mm-hmm. so I do that stuff. Uh, then I go to work and, uh, I'm just treating patients all morning, um, I'm a chiropractor. So I do like very neuromusculoskeletal type things, adjusting patients and that kind of stuff. Um, and then at lunch, uh, there's a, there's a sauna in the basement of the clinic. So I usually use the sauna or sit out in the sun if it's the right season. Um, something like that. And then that's when I have my first meal, which is usually, you know, some sort of animal food with vegetables and and no polyunsaturated fats and, uh, or at least no added polyunsaturated fats. Um, right. And so then, you're, you're, you're preparing that yourself, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. I take that with me. Right. Um, yeah. And then, um, afternoon I'm back in the clinic treating patients and then, um, come home and have uh, a smaller meal at dinner. Um, and then, and then usually just, read or hang out with my wife or something like that. And then go to bed and do it all again the next day. Yeah. Solid routine, solid routine. Um, I've been, I do a bit of all those gratitude journal, um, the breathing. I haven't quite gotten into that. I got, I've been wanting to, I actually, um, I, I, I do some sauna, but I do that towards the, actually I find I do the saunas actually towards the evening because I feel like I can just go to sleep Mm -hmm. after it. So I'm like, uh, uh, but the cold exposure, um, I've been looking into just doing, uh, building my own little cold plunge, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and just doing that. I just feel like in the morning, that would just like be such a great way to start the day. Yeah. It definitely wakes you up, gets you going. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's really, it sounds bad. Like people have never done it and right. you're like, oh yeah, cold shower. No way. That would, that'd be terrible. But <laughs> I actually feel really good afterwards, you know? Oh, um, yeah. and, and, and after like the first week or so, it, I don't even dread it or anything, you know, like, it's just like you do it and, and you look forward to it. Your body totally adapts to it. Right. Yeah. It's like yeah. The first thing you do anything. I mean, I'm big into fasting and we talk about a lot of a, a bunch in my, on my podcast. Um, and I noticed that, you know, you, one of your articles was fasting your way to heart, heart health. Um, maybe, uh, I, it's something that I probably don't dive into a lot regarding heart health and fasting, but, um, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think the biggest benefit to fasting is that it, um, at least in this modern day world that we're living in, is that fasting is a way to increase your metabolic health, you know, so even like, even if someone didn't change their diet whatsoever, uh, they just kept eating the same things they're always eating for the time they were eating, if they had longer periods where they weren't eating, um, 
you know, and they were doing a little bit of fasting, it's going to help their metabolism. I still think they should change what they're eating too. Sure. Um, but, but that's what it seems to suggest. That's the huge benefit of fasting is that when you do that, it, it helps improve your metabolic health, but it's really interesting as specifically to, and so when you improve your, your metabolic health, you're, you're improving any insulin resistance that may be there. Insulin resistance is a huge marker for cardiovascular disease. So by default, you're, you're improving your, um, uh, or lessening your risk for, for heart disease. But, um, but one interesting study, um, that I talk about in my book is, is this one they did on rats, which it's in rats, not in humans, which is, um, it is what it is, but, um, they, they did, they made these rats intermittent fast. These were health conscious rats, you know, they're intermittent fasting. Yeah. And, uh, now that they made these, these rats intermittent fast, and then they, I guess they induced heart attacks in them somehow. Um, and they noticed that the rats who were intermittent fasted and they'd been doing it for a few months or whatever for these rats, um, the, the heart attacks didn't, um, affect they them weren't as much or yeah, it didn't affect them as much. They recovered quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the heart attacks were on average smaller, like they did the same exact thing in both rats, but this, this one group of rats that wasn't intermittent fasted, the heart attack affected them worse. And it was a bigger, like more tissue was damaged, all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Whereas the other rats, they were smaller and it's really interesting. Um, you know, and I think that, I think it's because of the improvements in metabolic health, um, specifically because the heart is an interesting organ and in that it, it, uh, it really prefers fatty acids and ketones. And so if you've trained your body a little bit to use those more, it's probably going to be able to recover more, less damage is going to occur when it happens. So, uh, I think that's what happens with the rats, but they just observe that difference. Yeah. That's an interesting study. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I love fasting and if you can just find a way to, um, make your eating window smaller, um, that can go a long way. But like you said, eating clean, uh, those hand in hand, that's, that's, that's when you can really, um, make positive benefits, you know, towards health. Um, do you talk to a lot of your clients about it? Cause I'm assuming people are coming in for chiropractic work. I mean, obviously some of, some of them could be completely healthy and, and, and really good, but I'm sure, uh, maybe if they're having issues, knees or whatever back, you know, joint pain that they're probably over, I would assume that a lot of them are overweight and probably could, their first step would be to, you know, improving their metabolic health. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have a, we have a nutrition program. We call it the nutrition program where, um, yeah, I sit down and talk with people because, you know, I, I treat very neuromusculoskeletal type stuff. Like um, you know, spinal conditions, um, pain, that kind of thing, but really chiropractic, we're, we're treating the nervous system. That's our, the effect we have on pain is because we're, we're affecting the nervous system. Um, and so, um, and there's a structural component to that. Um, so we treat the structure of the spine, but yeah, then there's some people that either don't respond as well, or they're just very interested in nutrition as well. And so, you know, I sit down with them and, and go through how to achieve metabolic health. Um, because it's huge. And there's actually a lot of research that shows that insulin resistance directly contributes to, um, degeneration in joints, um, like knees and the spine and things like that. Uh, so it breaks down cartilage. It's just part of the destructive process. It's not just lack of joint motion that does that. It's, it's the, it's insulin resistance, that state of insulin resistance that, um, you know, triggers the joints to break down because insulin seems to be this, this thing that, that triggers growth and repair. Um, so like that's, that's the problem with insulin resistance in the lining of the arteries is that insulin is the signal for endothelial cells to repair themselves because there's always going to be wear and tear and damage, no matter what you do. And it's the ability to repair yourself that 
that is the key, you know? And so if you don't get the signal to repair yourself, then those endothelial cells become damaged and the body deposits cholesterol. Same thing happens in cartilage in joints. Um, if there's no signal to repair it and there's no motion, so, so nutrition, so fluid can flow in and out and, and, um, nutrition can get there, then they're going to degenerate over time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, I wish that every patient that came in would, would want to do that and want to sit down with me and talk about that too. Um, but not everybody wants to, so you got to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's becoming a bigger part of my practice and I hope it becomes bigger and bigger. Um, but again, people come to me for pain. I don't want to be like, Oh, you have to do this, this, and this, because then they're just going to walk out the door. Right. I want to help them. However, they want to be helped and then hopefully eventually get them to a point where they can make other changes too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, um, you talk about in insulin resistance, what would be the, a, a good marker? Like, let's say someone's listening, they're like, Oh, you know, maybe the, they're a little overweight. They, they have some health issues. Um, is it like fasting insulin, something to look for or what, what type of markers or things that you would look for? Yeah, definitely. Fasting insulin is probably, um, the most important one. Um, but you could also look at like uh, triglyceride HDL ratio, um, is, is one. And, and what was that again? Say that one. Can you say one more time? Triglyceride to HDL ratio. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you divide triglyceride by HDL, you get a, you get a number and it should be 1.5 or lower. Um, and, uh, same with fasting insulin. If you take the fasting insulin and you multiply that by, um, the blood sugar, the fasting blood sugar, and you divide that by 405, you get your insulin resistance score. Mm. And that should be 1.5 or lower. Um, and th those are good markers of, of good metabolic health. If you have those things that way. Um, but there's other things too, that can contribute to, um, or that you can get an idea, you know, just markers of inflammation in general, um, cause inflammation is going to trigger insulin resistance. Um, it's all part of the, of, of the, the system that's going on. So, um, so that could be uh, an important thing as well as markers of inflammation, which you can get really obscure with those. You can go down a rabbit hole with taking mm -hmm. out these markers of inflammation, but in reality, like a high sensitivity C reactive protein is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, those are that's good, good place to start there. Yeah. And, um, I know you mentioned briefly about HRV. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like that keeps coming up. Like, do you, how do you measure and that's heart rate variability? Cause, uh, do you, do you have a device to like, uh, like the whoop or something like that to measure? I have, or? I have an aura ring or a ring. Um, okay. and I don't really like wearing things. I don't like, yeah, I'm watches, sort of the same bracelets, way. things yeah. like that rings, I, I, uh, necklaces. I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, so I like the ring because I can put it on at night before I go to bed and that's when it takes my HRV and then I can take it off in the morning. Okay. Um, so that, that's why I like, um, that one. Um, but people can, there's lots of different devices that you can, you can get, um, to do that. But yeah, heart rate variability is, um, it's, it's the best measure we have of, of, uh, of balance in our autonomic nervous system, which is really, really important thing. And I think it's, it's overlooked. Mm. And unfortunately, like heart disease is all talk about diet and cholesterol and that kind of stuff, which is important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that, that heart disease the more and more I look into it, it's, it's more driven by imbalance in our autonomic nervous system and this constant state of anxiety, um, and unrealistic demand of modern society. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's a huge player that we're not addressing. 
Um, so I'm really trying to, to bring awareness to that. And the first place is to bring awareness to is, is measure your heart rate variability. Um, because, you know, it, you, you can't really see if it's improving or declining if you don't have a baseline, if you don't know what it normally is for you. So if you measure it, get your baseline, then you can see what things improve or, um, or worsen your heart rate variability. Um, but what is heart rate variability? So I, I describe it more, I describe it. Um, I think it's, it's easy, more easily understood by describing something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Um, because it's easier to understand, which is, it measures the same thing, which is balance in the autonomic nervous system, but heart rate variability is just the, the variation between heartbeats, right. you know, which and it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, but, um, but if you look at, think about respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which means, um, it basically means that term means the difference in heart rate between breathing in and breathing out. Um, so if like, if you took your pulse on your wrist and you, you kind of got your baseline right there, you can feel it. And then you took a, a slow, deep breath in, you would feel your pulse quicken a little bit. And then if you took a slow breath out, you would feel it go slower. And the difference between the fastest it gets when you breathe in, and the slowest it gets when you breathe out is your respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Hmm. Um, and that is basically measuring how um, adapted you are to being in a stress and non-stress state, uh, which is balance and autonomic nervous system, the heart rate variability that measures the same thing. Um, there's just different ways of measuring the same thing. Um, right. But that's what we're looking at is we're looking at your body's ability to adapt. Um, and I define health by um, does your body have the ability to adapt to different situations? Can it adapt to different fuel sources? Can it adapt to different stresses? Can it adapt to different brain waves and things like that? Like um, if we get stuck in one thing, like if you get stuck burning just carbohydrates or glucose for fuel and your body forgets how to burn fat, that's not, that's not uh, being able to adapt. If you get stuck right. in a, a sympathetic dominant state where your body is in a stress state all the time and you, and it forgets how to be in a non-stress state, that's, that's not training it to adapt, you know? So, so things we talk about, like, like the cold showers and stuff right. like that's training your body to adapt to different things. And that's really, really important as far as health goes. I define health by the ability of your body to adapt to different situations. Yeah. Exposing yourself to these hormetic stressors. Um, and just for small periods of time, right. can make, can make a big difference. Definitely. And, and so you look at, you know, uh, you know, a modern world is great and I'm not knocking our modern world, but it has made things very easy for us, you right. know, um, relatively compared to what things were like in the past. Um, and as, as awesome as that is, and as much as I want to stay in modern society and not go back to living in the woods and everything, mm -hmm. I recognize that for our health, um, I need to challenge my body a little bit. I need to, uh, uh, build up its resistance to things, you know, and increase its adaptability to different things to maintain my health, because that's how my physiology is, has been molded. Um, and so I need to, and to, to do that in the context of our modern world in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that that's put, put well, and, um, you know, sauna, uh, fasting exercise, um, cold plunging, or even just cold showers. Right. Um, what else could someone do? <laughs> um, I mean, like a ketogenic diet for a while. Yeah. I don't think that you have to be on a ketogenic diet or, a, you know, definitely like a ketogenic diet is 70% of your calories from fat, but I don't think that's necessary. Sure. Um, I call, I, I like it more to be a metabolic flexible diet, you know, which is lower in carbohydrate, but not necessarily free of carbohydrate. Sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, a diet like that, that, that keeps that, uh, it's kind of, it's almost like a hormetic stress. If it's, if you go 
you know, purely ketogenic. So, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's all kinds of things, um, that, that you could do, but, uh, you need some it, good ones. Yeah, no. Yeah. And I was gonna say, you don't have to go crazy with this stuff. It's just about a little bit every so often. And, um, it can go a long way for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Just building up your resilience a little bit, which is training your adaptability. Yeah. Um, what about, and then, um, uh, um, uh, few more questions, but what, what's your thoughts around like statins? Um, I work with a lot of like middle-aged males, uh, 40 years and older. And it's like, I mean, the amount of people that are on statins is just re- unbelievable. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And you know, is there a place for them or, <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, and I'm not a physician who's even eligible to prescribe medications. So, sure. um, you know, so what I say is just for informational purposes, but, you know, yeah, I, I think that there's a place for all these drugs and some people don't, don't like that. I say that kind of stuff, you know, but I think that they're, um, they're way overused. Um, and there's no, there's not enough emphasis on what can this person change, um, to, to improve, uh, their life and not just take a pill and then keep doing the same thing they're doing. Right. right, right. Um, that's not going to help the person. It's not going to help society as a whole. And so that's my main beef with lots of medications is that in, in many cases, there are things this person could do that would greatly improve their quality of life. Um, that pose no risk or harm. Whereas a lot of these medications may have a desired effect. Um, but they, they cause a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk and there's, and there's, that cause a lot of harm to a lot of people mm-hmm. on the decreased quality of life. And that's not what I'm about. I want to increase quality of life. Um, and so if you take a statin drug, you know, there's risk of developing type two diabetes, there's risk of developing, uh, cognitive decline, um, muscle pain, um, sexual dysfunction, all this kind of stuff, because you're inhibiting the production of cholesterol. And cholesterol is needed for all those things. So if you're inhibiting that, then, and uh, that's an issue. And like I said, that study shows that, um, you know, cholesterol lower than 85, which is, you know, something that, that many cardiologists shoot for with those drugs um, is associated with the highest mortality from anything. Um, and so that's, that's concerning to me. Um, but when you look at it too, like, I can't tell you how many studies I've read where they were, they were testing something that what didn't have anything to do with, um, with cholesterol or, or it wasn't even a statin. It was, they were just testing something and it said, and the intervention didn't have the result that we were expecting. However, it did end up with the people did end up with lower cholesterol. Therefore, this must be more heart healthy. It's like, that's just an idea that's not really founded in science. And so they're, they're assuming this, this intervention that they did is hard healthy merely on the fact that it lowered cholesterol. Um, and that's just never been proven besides some associational studies that can't really prove anything. Um, and so to me, it's irresponsible to, to, um, I guess, operate based on that notion when that's not really been proven. Um, and, you know, you can get into all the, you know, the, the influence from pharmaceutical companies and how, they've influenced the guidelines, um, on what ideal cholesterol should be. And it's, it used to be like 200 and then it like for LDL and then it's, it was down to 150 and then down to 100. And it's just like, and they've been influencing this because the lower the, the recommendation, yeah, the more they can (laughs) prescribe the drugs and more money they can make, which is just capitalism at its finest, you know, but, but it's just, it's not resulting in better health for people. And so, um, yeah, there's just, 
there's there's a lot there um and uh yeah, there and is i'd always there. i'd always want to default to um lifestyle stuff um before anything else because ultimately um that's the only thing that's going to increase your quality of life um taking right. a drug may have a desired effect but again it's likely not going to increase your quality of life and may even make it worse yeah and you bring up a point about uh like being like this in this range that you know and you're hearing i hear different ranges all the time like the one i did you know for total cholesterol had us had me being a range between 100 and 199 Mm-hmm. which probably is different than, you know, other places. Uh, and then for LDL, it was between zero and 99. Um, I actually had 109 for LDL and my total was 189. And I'm not concerned really with those. those. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. you said, what is the right benchmark, right? Is it, is it for just general population? And, and is it being influenced by the pharmaceutical companies? Or are we looking for like optimal health? Yeah. Just, you know, things like that. Well, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, our idea is like you look at the lab ranges on the side of your blood work. It says this is the normal range, whatever. Well, there's no more, like we've only been testing blood work, you know, for, I don't know, extensively for like 80 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we only really know the normal ranges of people living in a modern society, you know, removed from nature, um, living in the way, eating processed foods, that kind of stuff. So what is the, what are the normal ranges for like, you know, our ancestors, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, like, a, like what, what are their normal ranges? And, and let's go based off of, of that, you know, that, that may be something where we should be um, achieving. Like the, the example I give is like, if you took a giraffe out of the wild and put it in a zoo, so it's a semi similar environment, they're trying to recreate it. You right. feed them, you know, an unnatural diet mm-hmm. um, and, and they're, they're not in their right social environment. They're not um, around other giraffes as much as they would be in the wild. Right. Um, and then you took blood markers on it and said, okay, this is what's normal for a giraffe. Like who would believe that? I don't think anybody would believe that those are normal markers, but essentially that's what we've done with humans because we've been so far removed from our natural environment. It's not to say that we should go back. It's just that we need to, we need to think about that in that context. Yeah, that's a great point. And what we should do like blood work on like some of these tribes that have been around for, you know, and like that should be yeah. our baseline when there are, there's no better, met, no like metabolic disease and, you know, they're all ripped. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no that's, visceral fat. Let's yeah. Those should it. be the, those should be the numbers there. Cause yeah. like the numbers, the lab numbers are just based on generally healthy people within our modern day population, but right. Yeah. Generally healthy to me doesn't necessarily mean healthy. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, well, this was good. I could feel like we're almost an hour and I could talk another hour, but yeah. I want to, I, I, I wanted to ask, uh, I ask a lot of my uh, guess the same question at the end is what, um, what one tip would you give an individual that's, you know, looking to get their body back to what it once was like 10, 15 years ago, when maybe they were in their twenties and thirties. Um, one tip, like the most, <laughs> it's a loaded question, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, and this can encompass a lot of different things is I would, I would just say that one of the things that's going to help you do that. And then, and then maintain that is to it just make intentional choices, you know, don't just, you know, listen to me ramble on these podcasts or whatever, or go mm-hmm. to your doctor and listen to them and, and just try and reproduce what they say or do what they say, mm-hmm. you know, like actually learn why you're doing something and, and make it intentional, like learn the information. And then, and then, then your choices become your choices and not just following instruction and, and you're intentionally doing them. 
um, for a reason that you like, you know, mm. like for me, you know, I want to eat a healthy diet because I think it's better for me, but I also am really, um, passionate about like, you know, the environment and how we're changing the world, um, to a state, which is not very compatible with life that includes humans. Um, and so I know that me choosing to live healthier thing in a healthier way, um, you know, less toxic exposure, better diet, that kind of stuff is also having an impact on the environment. So like, that's an intentional choice that I make. And so then it becomes easy to go to the grocery store or go to wherever I get my food or, or wherever I do anything and make decisions. I'm not thinking about, okay, well, what did, what did that person say I should do? You know, I'm thinking about what are, what are my intentions is the choice I'm making supporting those intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, just make intentional choices I, I, and figure out what your intentions are. And, and that'll help guide you and keep you motivated to stay on these types of things. Yeah. Like truly figuring out, you know, why you want to make these changes, whether it's maybe even just like being able to play with your grandchildren or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, that should be what's driving your choices, not necessarily just going to a doctor and him telling you, Oh, you got to clean up your diet. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, why, you know, so um, exactly. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's great advice. Um, awesome. Well, Dr. Stephen Hussey, what are the name of your books? Uh, I wanted to mention that. Um, yeah. Um, my first book is the health evolution. Uh, why understanding evolution is the key to vibrant health. And that one's available on Amazon. Um, my second book is understanding the heart. Um, and it's probably going to have a new subtitle. So that one's not available right now because I got picked up by a publisher. And so we're working to republish that through the publisher. So I'm hoping by early next year, um, that one will be available again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then my website is resourcethroughhealth.com. And then, uh, I'm on social media, um, DR Stephen Hussey on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking. We, we touched on a lot of different topics. So yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. Great conversation. Yeah, hopefully it was beneficial. So um, thanks and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Hey, Get Lean, Eat Clean Nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day and gain muscle all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well, I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one with in my Fat Burner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards our health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me at brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.